0: I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school, and in the workplace. I'm your host, Lou. Well, there's been so much happening, everyone. As you will have heard from the last episode, uh, I interviewed Dr. Ross Green. So if you haven't been able to listen to that episode, please go back and definitely listen to it. It was absolutely mind blowing. And we have the petition that is still going, so if you're listening to this uh, in real time as the podcast episodes get released, please make sure that you sign the petition and share it. I will put the link for the petition into the show notes for this episode. Now today I'm interviewing an absolutely wonderful woman, Jane Hancock, who is the mother of Shadia Hancock. Shadia is somebody I interviewed last year and has started a business called Autism Actually. So I'm going to talk to Jane a little bit more about her life as Shadia's mum. We discuss all of those feelings and experiences of discovering that you have a neurodivergent child and Jane's experience parenting a child who is non-binary as well and And we also talk about Jane's own neurology as Jane has been diagnosed autistic in the last few years as well. So we're really having a conversation here. It's a great episode for any young families, I believe, to listen to and feel some camaraderie and encouragement. There's some wonderful quotes and advice and encouragement from Jane and i'm sure that all the young mums and dads listening right now are going to get some some comfort from hearing jane speak about her experience parenting a neurodivergent young person so let's enjoy this episode over to jane hancock welcome to the podcast jane hancock oh good. it's great to be here lou Thank you for being here. I've got lots to talk about today. Jane, we'll start with the icebreaker questions. Can you tell me what is your favourite animal and why is that your favourite?
1: Oh, yes. Well, that that's an easy one. I've always loved horses. I did gymnastics as a kid, so I, I love the speed and the flight and all that sort of thing. So with horses, I think it's the combination of the energy and I've come to realise from working with horses on the ground more that they've got a great presence as well. They're very deep animals and and also they're quite playful. So yes, horses would I like all animals really.
0: Yeah, me too, me too. And I've been waiting for someone to say horse, because that's my favorite animal. Definitely. Oh, really? By far and away my favorite animal. And I knew you might say that actually. So another thing we've got in common there. <laughs> And my second question is, if there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be and why? Oh, my goodness.
1: I'm not really good at these questions. I'm not really that great at narrowing things down, I have to say, like choosing the best answer. <laughs> uh, I'm going to sound like something out of a movie, uh, a pageant, World Peace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but true. look, beyond World Peace, um and the environment, which I, I, have to, I have to mention those because they've, they've got to be our concern now. I think really tolerance and understanding and I think we're in an era now where there's more understanding of diversity in all its different forms and bring that on, I say, and being a teacher, bring that on into education. <laughs> that
0: would be well. Nice. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> I know I'm trying so hard to do that. I, again, could not agree with you more, of course. Education is the, such an important setting for our children where, you know, things really happen in their developing years. It's so important. Yeah. I think it's interesting because
1: even the title of your podcast, you know, I, I, I tend to see things in pictures. So I see that board with the round hole and I think, well, it's ridiculous. How how can there just be one shape to fit everyone? And so,
0: yes, so the, the, there's a quest. There is. It's a, such an easy concept to get into your head, but it's just not easy to make it happen. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about you, Jane. <laughs> Please tell us a bit more about yourself, your life growing up, and your role as Shadia's mum, who's been on our podcast before and how that role evolved over the years, what is your relationship to the concept of the square peg trying to fit into the round hole?
1: Ooh. <laughs> okay, so at the risk of saying too much, I could, I'll just say that I, I grew up and I was very lucky to grow up, grow up in a very loving family. I'm the eldest of three girls. I'm the only blonde one. My sisters are dark, and but ironically, I'm the one who's always been a bit different. So we're still, we're very close, but we're very different. So growing up, I think I was a little kid that liked playing with blocks, liked uh, just spending hours and hours drawing. I had a farm set that I used to reconfigure for hours on end. I loved being outside. I collected all kinds of creatures and I was lucky to have a father who was a builder that made, and he made these most beautiful creature boxes for me. I dug a hole in dad's beautifully mown lawn and put black plastic in that and filled it with water for frogs' eggs (laughs) and I collected all kinds of things. So I suppose I, I loved reading. I loved learning, but... When I was at primary school, I aligned myself with the boys. So I loved football and cricket. I was kicked out of brownies. Brownies wasn't a good fit, I think, because I pointed out to Brown that I wasn't a fan of the games. And then grade five, grade six, I was sort of ostracised by the girls. I never really understood why that was. I then went to a girls' school after that. Yeah, I think a pivotal moment for me and probably the reason why I ended up going into teaching because I love sport and gymnastics and all that kind of thing. I had a teacher in year seven who treated me as though I was stupid because I came into year seven and I was the bottom of the class. Our primary school hadn't really covered the mathematics that other schools had covered and she made me feel so bad about myself and I just thought right (laughs) I'm going to show you so it took me about three years to to sort of claw my way up um, to the top maths group but it was a pivotal moment for me and I guess it catalyzed a career in teaching Mm. which might not have been my natural choice because I liked art and as I said sport and that sort of thing it was so also tell us a
0: bit more about your role as Shadia's mum
1: i guess when i had Shadia, i yeah i wasn't the natural mother so my middle sister is one of those people i think she would have accumulated children i think she would have had 10 kids if she could have um to this day she's one of these people that if there's a baby anywhere she'll say can i hold your baby Oh, yes, I know. (laughs) I'd be more inclined to say, can I pat your dog? Um, And when people ask me, would you like to hold my baby, I'd say, no, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to watch. It's not that I didn't like babies, but I just, I like to observe and I just didn't feel that comfortable holding babies. And I certainly didn't feel like a natural mother. Mm. But having said that, Shadi was planned. It was all to plan. And I remember being in the hospital and I remember looking at the cot and just thinking, oh, my goodness, I have to stay in this hospital forever because I can't do this. That was the start, I suppose. And But as time went by, I think, I don't know, I think Shadia and I fortunately have a lot of similarities and over time it's kind of morphed into Shadia being um, a guide for me, really. I was probably lucky to have a child like Shadia um, who did all the kinds of things that I did. Shadia had a big basket of plastic animals that um, they used to configure and Shadia used to do jigsaws for hours on end, draw. Well, I was happy with that.
0: Yeah, you related to that. That's interesting. Mm. So it's about seeing yourself in your own child.
1: Yes, I mean, I to be honest, uh, the first couple of weeks, Lou, I thought I'd nailed it because, you know, it's like you get that baby, the yeah, first couple yes, of I weeks. Do. Nobody, look, yeah, I didn't realize because, you know, is my first and only child. And I didn't realize that babies often sleep really well in the first couple of weeks. And so I thought, oh, I've nailed this mother thing. I do really well. <laughs> that was for the best. Oh, and of course, it turns out that as a as a baby, I was very similar. I had colic. Poor Shadia had colic as well, and so really, after about the three week mark, things changed. And I very I I certainly felt an instant connection to Shadia when Shadia was born. So there's no mm. problem there. But I looked to my middle sister a lot for guidance.
0: When did you how did you navigate those early years when did you start to see that Shadia was different to the
1: other kids I had a gut feeling about it but then as I said I wasn't a very confident mother I think I tend to be an overthinker so <laughs> as a mother I was an overthinker too I was look I was probably doing an okay job but I foolishly set up this kind of set of expectations for myself I was going to be the perfect mother so I wasn't going to make you know I wasn't going to make mistakes ridiculous now i look back on it that all went out the window really quickly by the way <laughs> but <laughs> it was really very early in the piece because things like my sister would say to me play you know do the vacuuming use the vacuum cleaner and all that. well Shadia just screamed, screamed the rooftops down. So that was, we didn't do that. My sister gave me a book on never fail recipes for infants, which I gave back to her. (laughs) In Shadia's first life, first year rather, there were a few things that I picked up. Shadia seemed to be doing this kind of, it was almost like somebody had hit the pause button. So this was only three months, four months, something like that, and it was almost like she was on hold and almost like gagging. So I went off to a paediatrician, a very well-respected paediatrician. And the first visit was okay, but the second time when I went back, this paediatrician said to me, "Well, is it a problem with the mother, of uh, the child, or the mother?" And she told me just to pinch her, pinch her. When she does that. What? Um, After that, other people start to see this. And and I wouldn't be surprised. It was like absent seizures now, now that I know more about it.
0: I see what you mean.
1: Sharia grew out of it. But what happened was I lost confidence. The other little telltale signs, Sharia did not like noisy environments, whereas my sister's kids, they really liked that. What Sharia loved was to be put under a tree. A tree canopy where there were leaves, and Shadia would um, have their little hands, you know to the side of the head, and the little fingers would be going. And you know, at some deep level, I kind of knew. I don't I, I can't explain it, but because I'd been put off by somebody who was an expert, it delayed the diagnosis. It really did.
0: And when was the diagnosis? How old was Shadia?
1: Shadia yeah. was two and a half when I had been asked by the childcare one day when I dropped Shadia off, would it be okay if they took some, some of Shadia's artwork? That Shadia was quite advanced for their age when it came to art. And of course, I puffed up with pride and said, oh, yes, my child. And a couple of weeks later when I turned up to drop Shadia off, they presented me with a wad of A4 pages and said, look, we think you need to read this. We think this is what Shadia has. And I can I can remember it. I went home and, I, look, it wasn't a surprise, Lou, not really. I went through this checklist for autism. <laughs> check, 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 check. Yeah. But I remember just sobbing to my mum and mum was a great support to me but uh, yes that was the introduction but Shadi used to do things like in playtime Shadi would sit in the in the sand pit and the other kids would be all playing together and Shadi would just be running the sand through their fingers and Mm. gazing at the sand in group time Shadi would get into all kinds of interesting configurations upside down or whatever and then (laughs) But, uh,
0: but well, this is a fair while ago. Shadi's is twenty now.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a so, fair while ago. So
0: I can't, I, I'm just wondering, is there is there a difference to what people are experiencing now? So the sorts of things pe- people describe these things as you are, but the reactions from the world, the environment, the whole around the peg, are they improving? Are they changing? You know, people still get thrown into ABA therapies. You know, a, a lot of um a lot of sort of behaviourism is imposed on young autistic people these days still. What was it like then 20 years ago? Was it still that way where it was just all about trying to fix Shadia rather than understand what Shadia needs?
1: There might have been an element of that. Um, I was really lucky. Look, I think there were a few elements at play. Number one, I've, I think for my whole teaching career, the students I've loved the most have been the ones who've been left of centre. They've always been the ones I've gravitated towards. And I've, I've tended to find connection with those students. So I guess there was an element of me being more inclined to be open to kids who are different, but also I was very, very lucky. I went to a great paediatrician after the other one, who put me in contact with an early childhood childhood consultant first, and she was fantastic. She was a great, and we, we've reconnected with her, she, and oh, which has right. been very exciting.
0: And how did you how did you get that person, and what where did they work, what department?
1: No, that was through the paediatrician. So before I even got the diagnosis for Shadia, so Shadia was picked up. The staff at the childcare care centre, look, maybe they could have done it a little differently, but I will forever be grateful to them for picking Shadir up because it enabled me to tap into these resources and be guided. The paediatrician uh, is just a very warm woman. She's from another culture, so has slightly uh, different views on perhaps raising children and she just, the first person she put me in touch with, with was the early childhood consultant because, of course, there are waiting lists for the psychologist to get the diagnosis and then the speech pathologist. And this early childhood consultant had a teeny tiny room over in Heidelberg because she had a doll's house set up and would do these little games and talk about pretend play. And I probably should have really twigged them, but I just said I can't, I can't do pretend play. I don't know how to do this. And Mm. she was fantastic because she guided me through that. Right. And was
0: that all part of the recognition of Shadia's um, autistic um, diagnosis? Yes, but
1: I kind of didn't join the dots that, well, the fact that I was rubbish at pretend play as well. (laughs) I just didn't honestly know how to do it. She was so patient because I was able to call her and say, but, Is Shadia really autistic? Because there's a bit of kickback. I suppose we'll talk about that too. But people, because Shadia was gorgeous and clever and Mm. articulate, very articulate, very well-mannered and often had reasonable eye contact, I have to say, back then it wasn't as usual for girls to be on the spectrum. Mm, So that was something that was not... So people, yes, I got a bit of pushback in that way, I suppose. But I was put in touch with great people who guided me.
0: Well, that's good to know. And I wonder if that's how you avoided some of the pitfalls that other parents don't know about, which is the whole reason for this podcast is to try and help young families to avoid being thrust into behaviourism that can be so harmful that the autistic community are telling us we need to avoid.
1: I think yeah, you, you mentioned ABA, Lou, and that was something I looked at at the time because my reaction was after I'd sort of come to grips with it, I guess I nerded out. So my way of dealing with things is to read and research. Hmm. And so I did. I really threw myself into it and but I looked at ABA and I was, I'd was i been fortunate enough to stumble through the doors of what was Autism Victoria in those days and they had quite a small place at that stage. And the staff there were just fabulous and they gave me some resources and we had conversations. And I think one of the things that I was made aware of was the do no harm uh-huh. and what is the cost. What is the cost of something? So mm-hmm. it's not just the... Financial cost, although I did look at that. Obviously, mm. it jumped out mm. with ABA, but it was also what is the cost on the family, what is the cost on the child? And I just realised it wasn't a good fit. At the time, I also, because I'm a trained teacher myself and I'm a big one for, you know, education and making sure that people are trained properly I mean we wouldn't go to a doctor that was just somebody dabbling in something or had done a weekend course in some, a bit of medicine yeah. I had doubts about who might be administering this to my precious child so I I didn't take up that that option. Wow
0: again something similar so the cost to me, I, I describe that as a gut feel. I just always had a gut feel about, about that approach. Why are we trying to teach behaviour? It just felt like the cart was before the horse. It was just round the wrong way. You interpreted that as the cost to all of you, not financial cost, the cost of harm, doing further harm, as you say. Yeah, and it just didn't feel right. Well, that's really interesting. I'm sure that that's helped you.
1: I think uh, that was I worked for positive partnerships for um, a, a several years and look it was one of the most wonderful things I've done I think in 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 my uh, career but uh, the people I worked with and so on but one of the things that we tried to impress on parents and carers was please look at the look at the cost in all its facets how's this going to play out with your family because When I look back on it now, um, my life with Shadia was probably very different. And look, it didn't come out until we started to do activities with the mother's group and then it became more obvious that Shadia would find a book. If there was a book in the house, you'd look around, where's Shadia? Well, Shadia would have gone off somewhere and be reading a book. Now, to me oh, I didn't think that was un- all that unusual because that's what I did when I was a kid. <laughs> I'd always be reading or drawing or doing something. But um, yeah, I think looking at the cost because I would have missed out on all that precious time, you know, doing Play-Doh together, exploring, you know, the part together, just being together and reading and all those sorts of things. And anyway... Getting through the day for Shadia and for me was exhausting. So I don't know how we would have managed it in any case. How Shadia would have managed it would have been very tiring. So, yeah, yeah, it's so stressful. So
0: stressful. I'm sure a lot of parents listening uh, will get some comfort from your approach and how it has benefited you and Shadia. Can we just talk a little now about your own neurology that you've referred to a few times? So when did you start to think that you may be autistic as well and what has that been like to be identified as an autistic person later in
1: life? Uh, I hadn't really pinpointed it as being autistic. I think I felt different when I was a very young child, I suppose five or six, I had this real thing about being a good person. I had to be a good person. I just for some reason I just didn't feel like I was and maybe that's because I wasn't quite fitting in at the time. Mm. Um I was a bit like Shadia, I was very polite teachers liked me because I loved doing academic stuff and all of that and had lovely manners. So it probably wasn't all that evident to others. I think when Shadi was very young, I felt like it just was me not coping very well with being a parent, that I was anxious. Ironically, I guess I thought because I was, I considered myself to be good with young people and I considered myself to be good in the teaching profession. And so therefore, it it seemed incongruous, therefore, to imagine that I would be autistic because I considered myself to be quite good socially. So it wasn't until there are a few little comments from family members. My dad, I think, started to say things about, you know, that Shadia and I moved in the same kind of way and there were parallels and all of that. But again, because of my mindset was just not in that space, um, mm. I didn't go down that pathway. So it was really Shadia. Shadia was the big catalyst. I think, my fear was that I would be a fraud. I didn't want to be a pretender. I wasn't going to be able to do a self-diagnosis, although I did. I got on the checklists. I did those checklists and, and I was probably a bit harsh because I'd err on the side of caution with some of them. But mm. even in doing the, those surveys, I, find, I found it really hard to answer the questions because I thought they were a bit open-ended. Yes. And then Shadow said, I've spoken to Pa and Pa thinks you know that you are as well and that's was the catalyst, my own child.
0: Yeah, wow. 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 That's that's fabulous. And it also highlights the fact that the old this, the old saying, you've met one autistic person, well you've met one autistic person.
1: What is that the saying? I don't know. I've probably got that Yeah, no, that's exactly no, it's exactly right. And I hasten to point out it's a privilege and an honor to be <laughs> officially sort of diagnosed. And I, I had to have an official diagnosis. I, I wasn't, I needed that. But it was a strange sensation. It was like those movies, you know, those movies where they roll them back really quickly and they go backwards through a lifetime to the beginning yes yeah I do know what you mean yeah and I did that and it was like oh okay and the fun I suppose one of the funniest moments was when I told my colleagues because I was bracing myself I was very worried that people would not believe me they said they they did and they said initially no in the early years when I started teaching with them I suppose I managed to hide it pretty well but it was when i gone through periods of when life had been very anxious that um been a lot of pressures and they said oh yes they saw it then and and I guess that's when I tend to become more rigid
0: Mm.
1: without realizing it and pedantic and not good with open-ended things And then I started to realise that probably for my whole life, you know, I went overseas for five years to Japan and Italy and I did really well. But when I look back on it, it was quite solitary in many ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, it's been an interesting exercise. And these mm-hmm. days, I tell you, I'm sort of almost mentored by my own child. Talk about a turnaround. Shadia pinches, has pinched many of the books off my bookshelf. and. Um, it's been an interesting experience.
0: Absolutely. That's so great. That's so so great to hear that. And of course, when we get to into our, well I'm in my 50s now. But when we get to this Me sort too. of age, okay. Um yeah, you can't it it, it must be different to be diagnosed at, with any neurodivergent condition when you you've got through your whole life masking so well like you've just described. Um, yeah of course it's like rewinding really fast and going back totally under, can understand that that's a w- wonderful story and it's so good to hear how the relationship with Shadia has developed over those years speaking of Shadia my next question is about uh, the intersection of gender diversity and neurodiversity as a mum to a young person who identifies as non-binary can you tell us a bit about that experience
1: with Shadia please Oh, yes. Well, I'm what you call a work in progress in that department. So we're big fans at our house. Poor Shadia, you know, having a mother who's a teacher. I am a big fan of growth mindset. I teach maths and um, I say this to my kids all the time, growth mindset. You, You have this idea of where you want to be. And then, where you're starting from, and you're not there yet. So, but as long as you're on the way, then that's a good thing. When I look back, it's been very interesting in that area as well, because when I was at school, I was a tomboy. When I was in primary school, I went through a period I, I adored my dad, oh, well, both parents, but I was more naturally aligned to dad and I wanted to be a boy dad was a builder and you know I kind of fancied being uh, sort of like a son I suppose not that I said that to him Mm. and but in those days you're just a tomboy so I climbed trees and I dressed as a boy and and we had hand-me-downs from our male cousins and I mainly mixed with boys anyway I felt comfortable with boys And probably through my lifetime, I've found male company easy. I am just so not girly girly. I'm not, I don't know how to navigate that. So I was rubbish at that. So it was interesting because Shadia started to talk about the gender side of things. As a result, I suppose it's made me look back on myself. And I guess now I realise I'd be quite happy to say that I'm non-binary, but you know I don't need to. That's just my mm. generation. Yes, I actually don't need to. Like you can, you can say she. I still use the she her pronouns with Shadia. I am, I am trying really hard. So Shadia is very patient because I mess up all the time. I think I've already messed up once here in this podcast, even though I really did not want to, because it's probably just the way I think. When I think they, them, I see visually in my mind, because I think in a visual way, I see a crowd. (laughs) I see two or more people. And it's just the way I've been brought up it's just the way i've related to the language in that way
0: yeah
1: and i've sharia and i've had lots of conversations some of them more spirited than others and sharia has sent me copious numbers of research articles so these days the exciting thing is that we share research i have had to learn about the gender issues i still mess it up i still if you quiz me on uh, the correct terminology. I'm sure I'd get it wrong. So I'm really careful. I usually <laughs> defer to Shadia. But I'm now doing my best to use the pronouns they, them for my own child. Now, it's really hard when it comes to substituting daughter for something. So I've tried, I'm now trying adult child. That's right. what I've okay. yeah. decided. I went through a period of trying to bargain with Shadia and show Shadow all these examples of people that used uh, they, them and she, her. And I said, how about that? And so Shadow considered it and said, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid I was not let off the hook there. So look, Lou, it's been a big learning curve. I think it's a bit of a generational thing. Mm. I think the English language is lacking. We were recently at, the Australian speech pathology conference and it was a topic for conversation there which was exciting in itself but the fact of the matter is that the English language and the use of our English language needs to catch up what I find is that in the space that I'm in there's a long way to go still in the space that Shadia mixes in it's commonplace so As Shadia said to me, but mum, the more you use it with your friends, the more normal it will become. And so I've had to push myself to then, and then often follow it up, um, even in conversations with parents sometimes, to say, oh, well, my child is non-binary and that's why I'm using these pronouns. But I am a work in progress. I mean, as far as as far as Shadia being non-binary, um, oh, that's fine. I kind of, I get that. I get that feeling of being almost near the centre line. Depending on the day, I'll feel more masculine and sometimes more feminine, but it's really around the centre line. Mm. Yeah, look, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like a lot of things. It's about educating people and the more... Mm-hmm. People are educated the more commonplace it will become and I think the one thing that I didn't understand was the impact it can have on people when they're mis, uh, misgendered when their pronoun the correct pronouns are not used.
0: So. Yes yes I'm hearing more and learning more about that as well and the other thing i found really interesting and I'd, I'd be really interested to know if Shadia has shared much with you on this, or if you've looked into it yourself, is from what I understand, there is a lot of research now about the actual brain structure of autistic people who were born female um, or were assigned female at birth. How we see again, I'm learning how to say all of this stuff as well, and I want to be respectful of saying the right thing, but that the structure of the brains of people who were assigned female at birth and autistic or neurodivergent is more aligned with the male heterosexual brain. This is something I've heard about. I don't know how much research there is. I don't know how much evidence there is, but it does make sort of common sense to me when I just think as, you know, a person of our generation understanding. Well, that kind of does make sense because there are a lot of autistic people who are born women who are identifying as or exploring their gender non-binary or actually transgender and and feeling more comfortable um, with the male pronouns so yeah I don't know do you know much about that have you yeah look
1: Shadia is really more qualified to speak on that I am learning from my own child on that but I think having a science background I've always found it quite fascinating that uh, people expect things to be black and white in a world where I've spent pretty much shutter's whole lifetime when when shutter's been old enough to have conversations to try to get Sharia to see the gray yeah <laughs> and to understand that most of life is gray yes and yet when it comes to gender, no that's not the case and I guess I've had many friends over the years who, have males, who've been gay, but who have married early in their life. They they didn't choose to be gay. They didn't, it wasn't because they wanted to be fashionable. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation there. Really. Um, And for some, it created great angst for them. It was not a choice. And it's like, you know the brain wiring being autistic i mean i honestly when it comes to sometimes female conversations and just the social side of things i think in recent years i've reflected and realized how much of that i don't get i just i don't and and never have well how do they do it clearly they do it really well so there's a difference so what's the problem like you know I mean a rainforest a rainforest if you you looked at a meter in a rain meter cubed in a rainforest it's a little ecosystem comprising so many different species of plant animal you know and that's what makes it such a rich amazing environment so surely we should extrapolate that um, to humans and as Shadia has often said, it's a social construct too, because it's not something that goes across different cultures. So different cultures have different views. Uh, I think tolerance is a big thing in all kinds of diversity, and it's something we need to really fight for in all different areas. Um, Which whether goes it's back
0: to the original question,
1: yeah, it does neurology gender? Mm. religion culture whatever Mm. well
0: that's that's been a fascinating discussion it's real breath of fresh air thank you so much for talking to me about that I just have a few more final questions for you I wanted to talk about autism actually which as we you mentioned to me before we were when we were chatting before we were recording is actually Shadia's baby but let's talk a little bit more about the organization and the role you you play and its purpose and how things are going with it
1: yes well I feel very privileged to be uh, a part of Shadia's startup business and I know that you you had a wonderful podcast with Peter Hutton and I just want to put in a bit of a plug for Peter (laughs) I will forever be grateful to Peter for the school that he fought so hard to establish. Shadia, you talked about gut gut feelings earlier, Lou.
0: Yeah,
1: um, I really went on gut feelings when I chose schools for Shadia. I looked at many, many for primary school. We would Shadia was um, very fortunate in the primary school as well, but I went on gut feeling. Our very first meeting with Peter Hutton at Templestowe College um he spoke to us for an hour he was so generous with his time he was a great mentor for Shadia he was always open it was a very level playing field I will be eternally grateful because what he he set Shadia up I mean as parents we do what we can but there is an element of um oh, mum. You'd always say that you all Shadia says to me, Mum, you always say that was the best dinner I've made. <laughs> you know? well, of course, we're going to be fans of our, of our kids. Peter and the school that he created, and that different way of educating, uh, offering education really suited Shadia. And I believe that that's what's given Shadia enormous confidence and allowed Shadia to really tap into their strengths. And autism actually, Shadia is very, I think their psychologist described it as a Jesus heart.
0: Shadia has a Jesus, Jesus heart, heart
1: which I like. So Shadia has a real commitment to help and to give back to the community. And so autism actually does just that or strives to do just that offering presentations to large groups and that's how Shadia really started out by advocating to their own teachers. So initially it was me reading out from a script that Shadia had authored and then it was presenting to Shadia's teachers and then it went on from there. Shadia mentors younger autistic individuals and I think for them to see somebody like Shadia Um, at university, Shadi is quite open with the fact, and I think we've tried to be as a family, not everything's going to be easy and actually struggle. It's part of life. So, Mm. you know, you, you work, you try to work through that and you learn from that, but the autism actually, and I'm on board. I offer my (laughs) input as, uh, from my teaching background, from my parent background, And I tell you, the most exciting times are when I stand with Shadia and present with Shadia. It's really exciting to do that. I can't tell you from that little child at two and a half, I could never have imagined where life would have taken Shadia. And I think that's something I'd like parents to just realise that there's a long way between the little child that you have in front of you when you first get that diagnosis to where they can go and look at the strengths, tap into the strengths. I think Shadi has found a way through autism actually and through pursuing speech pathology to tap into the strengths that Shadia has and to shine. Now, had Shadia gone to another school, I don't believe it would have been the same scenario. I remember we, we were a bit puzzled about what career Shadia would follow at one stage because it had to be something that you know balanced the needs that Shadia has um but I think Sharia, as Shadia would say has found the sweet spot
0: so absolutely has education and the the experience you have at school this is why we've got to get it right we've got to get more schools like Templestowe College more people like Peter Hutton and I know he's doing it as you said he's been on my podcast and he was an amazing guest and talked about the Future Schools Alliance and we're trying to sort of support his efforts to to because he says he lives and breathes and sleeps education I think we all need to do that Um, and you've just spoken to that how important it was in Shadia's life and yeah it's it's why I wanted you here today because you have had that experience that I kind of relate so much to as a parent and hearing you talk about that little two-and-a-half-year-old and seeing them grow up, that's what I, I'm seeing it with my son as well I and mean, I just hope it keeps going that way. It's so,
1: it just gives people so much hope. Yes, well, I think that's what, I, I try to do that in my teaching as well I guess that's my big passion having yeah having my own experience well with maths I realized it had never been taught to me in the way I needed it to be that I'm really a visual person Mm. I need to do it more visually and so with my students I like to try to encourage them to reflect as much as possible and think how do you learn things you know it might be your, your computer games it might be um just things around the house that they do well how is it that you learn that you know yeah. what's your way of learning and to try to tap into that yeah uh, but to pump their tires because again you know i think peter talks about the narrowness yeah. of the education system people are best to listen to peter he he's a great one to listen to and i'm I'm a, I'm a fan there is no one size fits all for pretty much anything in life I think and certainly not education
0: yeah so why is the education so rigid that way absolutely and we're going to finish with a devil's advocate question actually this is my second last question for you is there anything you would do differently we've heard everything that you did that you're <laughs> proud of and you should be but what would you do
1: differently if anything Oh, my goodness. I looked at this. I have thought about this. One thing I'd do differently, but then, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I would not have put my child in bib and brace overalls and virtually every piece of clothing that had buttons because poor Shadia, when Shadia was able to articulate, said to me, I'm not going to wear anything with buttons. You know, because it was a sensory thing. Yeah, yeah. I look back now and I think, oh, my goodness, I tortured my child.
0: Yeah, I did it too but, with the socks.
1: <laughs> look, I have to say, if I was, you know, the fact of the matter is, as I said to you at the very beginning, I set out and I was going to be, yeah, I was going to be a perfect mum. I was not going to raise my voice. I was always going to be listen to my child and I was not going to lose it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. I suppose what I did do was to be real, which I tried to be real with Shadir I wasn't even sure whether that was the right thing to do either, but I just said, "Look, I am not a perfect person. I'm a human. I'm going to mess up." And I have. I just messed up. I think I look back, there's lots of things that I made mistakes with, situations that I put Shadir in. I don't know. Would it have been any different in some ways? It's built resilience. You know, you you don't want to subject your child to too much, but Mm -hmm. there does have to be some element of resilience building. Um, I much prefer to go from a growth mindset point of view where we just keep drawing that line in the sand. I think I would have liked to have got up to speed with the pronouns more because I think without meaning to, I think I've been hurtful to Shadia with mm-hmm. that but you know we've had discussions about that and I think as parents that's that's all we can do we can just be honest and say well I'm struggling too and I'm doing the best I can and I love you and mm-hmm. I want what's best for you and to just be real about the fact because we've got a model for our children too that they are going to make mistakes in their lives and they are going to make mistakes with their children and they are not always going to know going to know what the best um, options are we just do our best. Yeah.
0: And as long as you're learning from those mistakes as you go and you don't keep making them, then yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's what you strive to do. That's what you strive to do. To, to, And I've been very lucky, I should have said earlier, I've been very lucky to have had great supports in particularly other friends who have children on the spectrum who have been trailblazers who I could ask for advice and sometimes just to cry with Be vulnerable with yes they understand
0: well and the other thing I would say to that answer is that when Shadia was on the podcast last year they um, were very positive and and understanding about you so don't beat yourself up too much because publicly Shadia at least is saying (laughs) all the right things about you as a (laughs) mum so
1: you can rest easy I have to say, look, I probably inherited this from my parents who really lived it out, that we try to resolve things and we try to have a laugh about things. And I think I've got better because I do have a tendency to want to talk things through until we, (laughs) we, you know, and I, I used to do that with my own father. You know, we'd hash things out and I'd have to do that. I've learnt with Shadia come on back off but we use humor a lot good to just have a laugh at ourselves and that can diffuse things we do that now
0: too we i'll call liam names and, and he'll call me names back and it sort of just makes us laugh you know yeah whatever works whatever works to build on your relationship and you've got a wonderful relationship and i'm so glad you came on my podcast i I You've mentioned Peter Hutton, but I usually ask everybody about books or resources or anything. We've talked about your um, fabulous autism, actually, Peter Hutton, anything else that you would like to mention that really guided you?
1: Well, I'm happy to um, provide them for you. I I note that you put them down on the um, link site. But in addition to what you've talked about, Positive Partnerships has an amazing repository of information, Reframing Autism, I think Shadia mentioned, Emma Goodall, Dr. Emma Goodall. Oh gosh, I'd recommend you um, look at what Emma Goodall has is also associated with positive partnerships. But Emma talks a lot about interoception and being able to reflect on on one's own inner state, you know, emotionally or sensory or whatever. I can network. Monadella Hook. I did Monadella Hook's course. It was just brilliant. Highly recommended. And Barry Present and an absolute joy has been listening to the pod. Barry Present has got a podcast called um, with Dave Finch called Uniquely Human. And one of the greatest joys for me has been listening to that with Shadia because I read Barry Present's stuff years and years and years ago when Shadia was very little. So done the full circle okay I haven't heard of Barry Prezant so well what... I should say Prezant I think he pronounces his name Prasant, but yes he is a speech pathologist and jo- oh, he's got other strings to his bow as well but okay he's just one of these very warm compassionate people mm-hmm. and his book Uniquely Human I would recommend that to everyone to read
0: I will most definitely link that that's a new one for the resource bank on the website thank you very much it's very good all right well unless there's anything else you want to say
1: oh gosh Lou I think I've talked a lot perhaps a bit too much but
0: no I I haven't had anybody on for a while with a lived experience sort of more of a conversational episode so I think this will be so lovely for people especially all the young parents out there to listen to so I really thank you very much for coming on we finally did it Jane we finally recorded
1: oh gosh Lou it's been a long time coming
0: it has. <laughs> all right well let's sign us off then thank you so much Jane thanks Lou it's been great acknowledgements thank you to Carla Kuschel of Carla Cushel Creative for the podcast logo and the website images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C music is also by Jazzy C finally a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me as always thank you to my partner in everything Ash Cushel and remember just be nice to one another